thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. Now, coming up in this week's programme, we'll be hearing how scientists can use your own cells now as Trojan horses to sneak chemicals into the bloodstream, and that's to improve the results of body scans in future. We'll also be finding out where HIV came from and when it came on the scene, and that's because scientists have found a fossil version of the virus locked away in Africa. More coming up on that shortly. And also the beetle that makes its own antibiotics to control fungus growth. That's all coming up, Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're taking a look at new ways to treat and prevent cancer. We'll be hearing how doctors have found a way to reprogram the immune system to destroy skin cancers and about a new way to scan patients to pick up tumours when they're still really tiny. And we'll also be getting an update on the vaccine that's recently been launched to help prevent cervical cancer. Thanks, Helen. That's all on the way when we'll also be getting to the bottom of this mystery. I just want to know, why is it that humans have three different blood groups, A, B and O, and do animals have the same blood groupings? Thank you. That's the basis of blood groups, and it's all coming up later in this week's Naked Scientist. So if you've got a question for us, or for the show in general, then do write in. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Exciting news now, because... Scientists have come up with a clever idea which might help us to make even better body scans happen. Now, one of the things that you can do when you want to do a body scan, rather than just putting magnetism or x-rays through a patient, is to add something called a contrast agent. This goes into various parts of the body, and what it does is soak up x-rays or it amplifies a magnetic signal so that different tissues can be seen more clearly on the scan. A good example of this is something like a barium enema or a barium meal. When someone swallows some barium, the barium soaks up x-rays, so when the patient gets put into a scanner, the x-rays don't go through the barium as well, and since the barium should be coating the surface of, say, the intestine, it means that the wall of the intestine becomes much clearer. Thing is, though, when you want to scan organs and look at the blood supply to those organs, if you want to put a contrast agent into the blood supply... Because blood is moving, it keeps washing the contrast agent away, and this means that you either have to give very big doses of the contrast, which can be toxic to patients, or it can also be very expensive. Now researchers have come up with a very clever idea to use our own blood cells to get around the problem. This is Mauro Magnani. He's a a researcher at the University of Abino in Italy. He's teamed up with researchers at Philips, Philips Research. And what they've done is come up with a clever strategy to use red blood cells. Now, the contrast agent they're using is something called iron oxide, in other words, rust. This is a paramagnetic or magnetic chemical, which means you can use it to act as a contrast enhancer for MRI, magnetic resonance scans. Now, if you give iron oxide into the bloodstream, it very quickly gets picked up by parts of the immune system that deal with foreign things in the body and gets flushed out, so it's difficult to pick it up for very long. So what they do is to take some red blood cells out of the body, put them into a more dilute solution, and because the cells are more concentrated 
than the solution around them. They start to soak up water, and this makes them blow up like a balloon. And this stretching effect opens up little gaps in the membranes of the cells so that then the particles of iron oxide, nanoparticles, can get inside the cells. They then put them back in a normal solution, the cells shrink down, but now the nanoparticles are trapped inside. So you then re-infuse those particles inside the cells back into the patient and they then circulate for the lifetime of the red blood cell which is about 120 days and you've effectively got contrast on tap. Do we know doing this to red blood cells is going to affect their, the way they work in our blood system? Is it going to be a problem for us absorbing oxygen? Well, it shouldn't make any detrimental difference. Iron oxide F, uh, nanoparticles like this have already been licensed to use as a contrast agent for patients in hospital. They haven't been licensed for putting inside red blood cells. And so the next step and what they're going to be looking at in the coming months is whether this is safe and effective um, and therefore whether it can be used. Sounds good. Well, from the world of our own bodies to the world of the oceans. Now, I'm afraid I have some slightly gloomy news um, from the world of marine biology this week with a study that suggests that crabs and other crustaceans in the ocean could be the first to suffocate in the increasing number of marine dead zones in the world. And those are areas where there's very little or no oxygen. And what's more, possibly more importantly, the extent of these this areas of oxygen deprivation in the oceans could be much, much bigger than we thought before. Now, this is a study from the Mediterranean Institute for Advanced Studies in Spain, and it was published by Raquel, um, I'm sorry, the Spanish is a problem for me, <laughs> Vecchia, Sonia and Carlos Duarte. Sorry, guys, if I got that wrong. Um, they published this in the journal PNAS this week and they looked at how, at how well different types of bottom-dwelling marine creature can tolerate lower levels of oxygen. And they went through um, hundreds of other studies that were already published, so they weren't actually doing their own research, but they were doing a sort of meta-analysis of everyone else's work. And they looked at over 200 different species and looked at exactly what the threshold level was of oxygen that was, sustains life for all these different species. Species. And what they found is that, is that there is a great range in the tolerance of different species to how much oxygen they can tolerate, or how little oxygen, if you like. Some, like the American oyster, can put up with virtually no oxygen, um, while others are very sensitive. And the young larvae of something called the rock crab will die unless there's up to 8.6 milligrams of oxygen in every litre of water. And how does that compare with the conditions you'd find in your average dead zone? Right. Well, this is the point. Um, there was a study a couple of months ago um, in the journal Science that um, looked at the global extent of these dead zones. And what they did was they took a level of 2.8 milligrams per litre of uh, oxygen um, and um, so that was considerably lower than what this new study seems to show, which actually the threshold for most, maybe 90% of bottom-dwelling life could be more like 4 milligrams of oxygen per litre, so almost twice what these guys predicted. And based on the 2.8 milligram of oxygen level, that gave us 245,000 square kilometres of ocean bed that are essentially dead, at least for part of the year. And Why that, do these things happen, Helen? It mainly comes down to something called eutrophication, which mostly is a consequence of of um, coastal pollution, mostly from the influx of fertilisers from land. And what happens is um, excess fertilisers that wash through the soils um, in the agricultural areas get into the coastal waters and they cause algal blooms. These are nutrients, mostly nitrogen and phosphorus, well, nitrates and phosphates, and they cause plants to grow in abundance. These are algae, seaweeds, tiny um, single-celled algae called phytoplankton, and they grow in abundance. But the problem happens when they die because they will then um, drop down to the bottom of the sea and then bacteria break them down and use up all the oxygen and that's what's happening mostly is what we're seeing climate change might also be making it worse because warmer water holds less oxygen so we are seeing an increase in the number of dead zones in the seas perhaps an exponential increase since the 1960s and just briefly Han, what are the implications of this because now they've shifted the goalposts for how 
much we think animals can or cannot tolerate the low oxygen. What are the implications and what can we do about it? Well, I think the implications are, yes, we need to look at it again, just to see how big these areas might be, even bigger than we thought before. Things we need to consider are stuff like, well, water quality targets. How are we controlling the input of, of nutrients into those coastal zones? Perhaps we need to really start looking at moving those goalposts again um, to really try and look after marine biodiversity based on a lot of what we do on land. So I guess the next few years are going to be quite critical for this. Thanks, Helen. Now, uh, to another subject, which is probably the worst pandemic mankind has ever seen. And we talk about flu being a big problem, but HIV has eclipsed everything we've ever seen. And a big question is, where did it come from and when? Well, researchers, by genetically analysing HIV, have got a pretty clear idea as to where, where HIV originated. Its closest living relative is a strain of a, a virus called SIV, which is found in chimpanzees. So we think that the virus jumped out of chimpanzees and got into humans. Big question, though, is when did that happen? Because that gives us some clues as to what might have triggered it. Because if you can narrow it down to a, a time in history, you can also look at what else was happening geographically at that time to try and work out what might have triggered this jump. Because understanding these jumps is really important. Because if you can unleash pandemics like this relatively easily, we need to know how to stop them. Because we don't want this to happen every day of the week. Uh, Michael Warraby is a researcher at the University of Arizona, and he has a paper in this week's journal, Nature. Um, and what he's done is to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo and they have found some old tissue samples from the 1960s. These are tissue samples that were collected from patients being treated for other things in hospital. They were kept in paraffin. So when you take a tissue sample, it's fixed in formaldehyde and then put into paraffin. And this has kept it in pristine condition. And the researchers have been able to extract genetic material from these tissue samples. There are a number from quite a few patients. And in that genetic material, they found the sequences of HIV. And by comparing those genetic sequences with HIV today and also another sample of HIV that turned up in a blood specimen from 1959, they've been able to work out roughly how fast HIV evolves and changes as it spreads from one person to the next. And by comparing these two viruses, also then wind the genetic clock backwards to try and predict where HIV turned up on the scene first. And the answer is, it looks like 1908 with a possible range of 1884 to 1924, is the most likely date when HIV first surfaced in humans. Why is that date significant? Well, this is the time when colonial powers first began to establish big cities in what was then the Belgian Congo. It was a Belgian colony, now, now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, and big cities like Kinshasa, at the time Leopoldville, first got established. And what the researchers are saying is it could have been the influx of Westerners, big cities, putting small numbers of cases of what was to become HIV in people in very close proximity to other people, and the virus then began to spread amongst those people, possibly helped by things like vaccination strategies. There are records from around the same time of 70,000 people being vaccinated with the same seven syringes, and if anything is going to start a pandemic, that could. So this looks like pretty good evidence that HIV started in about 1908. And it also tips the balance well away from a claim made a few years back that another source of HIV could have been the oral polio vaccine because this was being developed in the Congo in the 1950s and some people had suggested that perhaps tissue culture techniques used at the time could have led to the virus jumping into people. But the fact that the virus couldn't possibly have evolved enough to, to have become like these two specimens they've now got um, argues strongly against that. So that's, that's a, an interesting finding in terms of where HIV came from, we think.
It's it's fascinating how genetics can keep, let us really um, unfold what happened in the past and really gives, give us an insight into history and with very much modern day applications. That's really quite quite amazing. Well, I'm going to finish off with a slightly more upbeat uh, story about beetles from the wonderful world of beetles, which we have now discovered ex- enlist the assistance of bacteria to help protect their fungal food stores from attack by other fungal invaders. Now, this is according to a study published this week in the journal Science by a team of researchers led by Jared Scott from the University of wisconsin Now, these are southern pine beetles, and they're a major pest in the southern United States where they infest pine trees and plantations and cause millions of pounds worth of damage every year. And the adult beetles dig tunnels under the bark of these pine trees and infest them with a particular strain of fungi, which they eat. Well, they actually feed it to their larvae when they're growing. Um, And they carry the the, the fungus on their own bodies, the adults do, on a little pouch called a mycangium, and then they um, inoculate the trees that they live in. Now, we already know that this particular type of fungus are carefully farmed and that there's another fungus um, that actually disrupts the development of the food fungus and if that comes along um, then the beetles um, aren't able to feed their larvae as much. Now what Scott and his team have discovered is that the beetles actually play host to two types of bacteria and these produce antibiotics which keep the invading fungus at bay but leave alone the beneficial food fungus which is rather wonderful. It's really exciting because that's a direct parallel of uh, actually a study we reported here on The Naked Scientist quite a few years ago, about two or three years ago now, um, of a paper in Science looking at ants that are leaf cutters. And leaf cutter ants, as you know, go to leaves, they cut chunks off, they take the chunk back to their nest, and lots of people think they eat the leaf, but they don't. They inoculate the leaf with a fungus, exactly like the beetles you've been talking about, Helen, and the fungus then breaks down the leaf and the ants eat the fungus. But there's another fungus that comes in which can destroy that healthy fungus and also infect the ants and harm them. So the ants have little pouches which are fed by the ant equivalent of a sweat gland and in these pouches they nurture a kind of bacterium. In this case it's a bacterium, I think it was Pseudonocardia, which produces an antibiotic, ba-boom, which they can then sprinkle around themselves and their nest and it suppresses the bad fungus and encourages the good fungus. So I wonder when they come to examine this a bit more carefully, whether the genes involved or, or even the, the bacteria involved are going to be the same. It, I think they're saying that this antibiotic in the, in, the, in the beetles is a new one that we haven't seen before, which is very exciting. That could lead to its own uh, developments. And the other thing is that these beetles really are a pest. They are a problem. So if we can maybe fiddle around or figure out a way of interfering with these bacteria, perhaps we can get rid of the beetles which will be good. Thanks, Helen. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. This week's show is devoted to the subject of cancer, and very shortly we'll be joining Dr Kat, who's also with us on this week's show, but she is in Birmingham. More from her and what's happening at the NCRI, that's the National Cancer Research Institute, coming up in just a second. Now, every year, the National Cancer Research Institute holds a conference, and this the idea being to highlight the latest cancer research that's going on around the world. And our very own Dr Katani is in Birmingham to bring us the latest news. So, Kat, what are the big stories that are coming out of the conference this year? Well, I'm here at the NCRI conference. That's the National Cancer Research Institute, which is an organisation that brings together all the funders of cancer research here in the UK. So that's pieces of people like the government, charities, all sorts of organisations that are funding cancer research. And the conference is really a fantastic opportunity to show case what's going on in the world of cancer research. So we've got everyone from people doing the really fundamental lab research. We had a talk this afternoon from Professor Tony Kuzaridis from Cambridge University who's looking right at the sort of the molecular post-it notes that are put on our DNA that are important in cancer. Right now we're sitting above the lecture theatre and there's someone talking about the importance of dying with dignity when people come to the end of their journey with cancer. There's going to be a, everything from, from the very basic research through to the sort of the, the much more quality of life 
life, patient care kind of areas. But Kat, what's the, the problem with the UK allegedly not doing so well on the cancer stakes compared with the rest of Europe? Exactly. The first lecture of the conference today was from Professor Michelle Coleman from London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and he's one of the world's leading epidemiologists. That's someone who studies the sort of the statistics and the populations to do with cancer. And he was pointing out that there have been a lot of studies, these Eurocare studies, that have shown that, that Britain pretty much is one of the sick men in Europe. You know, in, in terms of football league tables, we're drifting towards the relegation zone. And this is happening for a number of reasons. Uh, for a start, the Eurocare studies are using relatively old data. So in fact, here in the UK, uh, around the sort of year 2000, 2002, we brought in a cancer plan. So we are turning around what we're doing. But it has shown that basically that the UK has been falling behind. But it's not actually what people think. It's not all about access to drugs. Um, it's actually really to do with early detection. And that was one of the most interesting results that he showed, that when you look at five-year survival rates across Europe, this is the, the standard benchmark that people use for how long do people survive cancer you know for five years uh, how many people survive that long if you take out from those statistics all the people who who die from cancer within a year and that's people who basically their cancers were diagnosed very very late very advanced tumors if you take those people out of the equation Britain actually really comes back in line with the European average. So this tells us that, in fact, in Britain, our major problem is diagnosing cancer early. And why is that? Well, it's a number of reasons. Um, there's obviously a problem with just educating people, that we need to get more information out there about what the symptoms of cancer are and that people should really not just get the stiff upper lip and think, oh, it'll probably go away if I ignore it. Go to the doctor. Um, there's also an issue with educating GPs as well to spot when someone presenting with certain symptoms may actually have cancer and you think well cancer is a relatively common disease but actually GPs may only see maybe six to ten patients a year who actually do have cancer in a, in a list of maybe two three thousand patients so it's not really that common for each GP so we need to do more in education for GPs and the public and then also more in things like CT scanning MRI scanning to try and really get cancer detected as early as possible. And just very briefly, Kat, before we move on, um, I know we're coming back to you shortly, but also there's a story this week about how computers can help to read mammograms, which might help to bring up the prediction and detection rate. Well, exactly. And this kind of ties into the whole early detection thing. So in the UK, we have a, a fantastic programme of breast screening run by the NHS, and it does save thousands of lives. Uh, and it invites all women in their 50s, uh, from 50 to 70, to go for a mammogram every three years. And every mammogram is read by two doctors. So two radiologists look at it, look for any sort of dodgy spots and decide whether to call the woman back or not. And now what these researchers, led by Professor Fiona Gilbert at the University of Aberdeen, have shown is that you can use one doctor and a computer-aided detection system. And how this works is the computer system scans through the mammogram and spots anything that it thinks looks suspicious. And then the doctor looks at it and goes, yep, that looks dodgy. No, actually, that's just, you know, sort of a, an area of fluff or whatever. Um, and then you only need to have one doctor's time per mammogram. So basically, you're, you're halving the workload for doctors. And this is really important because in some areas of the country, we're, we're seeing screening, the interval of screening is meant to be three years, but we're seeing it drift out to three and a half, four years because there simply aren't the resources. So this could be a really great way to get more women screened and to, to help to ease the pressure on the screening services. Which, of course, would be very good for affecting that uh, diagnosis 
detection problem that you mentioned earlier. Thank you, Kat. That's Dr. Katani. She's at the NCRI. That's the National Cancer Research Institute Conference up in Birmingham. And she'll be rejoining us very shortly to talk about new ways to spot cancer much sooner. That's with Herbie Newell. He'll be joining her in just a moment. So first of all, let's head over to Kitchen Science and find out what Ben and Dave are doing in the kitchen for us. For this week's Kitchen Science, I'm back at Dave Ansell's house and appropriately in Dave Ansell's kitchen. For today's experiment, Dave asked me to bring along any empty drinks cans I had at home. So I've raided my recycling bin and I've got a big pile of drinks cans here. Dave, I haven't crushed them yet. Are they okay? Not crushed is ideal and you probably don't want beer cans because beer cans have got plastic widgets in the bottom. We don't want any of those. Well, it's a good job that I don't have any beer cans in my recycling. They're all soft drinks. Okay, so... What do we need to do today? This is an experiment which you could do at home if you're careful, but it's quite dangerous, so I'm not going to tell you to. What I'm going to start off doing is getting a drinks can and pouring a little bit of water into the bottom, maybe only half a centimetre or so. So really only a very small amount of water? Yeah, the less you put in, the quicker it'll work. So let's just pour some water into a drinks can. OK, we have water in our drinks can. What's next? Now I'm going to turn on a hob. You could use an electric hob or a gas hob, but we're going to put the can on top of the hob to make sure it's stable. So this is one of the reasons why this is actually quite a dangerous experiment to do. And if you're going to do it at home, be very, very careful. Now, Dave has an electric hob, which means that he can put the can on it and it's definitely stable. It's standing upright and it's not going to fall off. That might be a bit harder to do with a gas hob. But the other thing that he's done is put some goggles on. So, Dave, people really do need to be careful if they're doing this at home. Well, you're just playing with boiling water, which is actually quite dangerous if it goes, especially in your eyes. Okay, so we've got the can on top of the hob. While that's heating up, what do we need to do next? What I'm going to do is wait until that can is boiling away nicely. There's lots of steam coming out the top. It's a really violent boil. And pick it up with some barbecue tongs and turn it upside down into a tray of water, which I'm just going to fill up now. So we just need to fill a tray with water. I guess a large saucepan would work. Yeah, anything which is significantly bigger than the can and you can put it in very easily. Okay, so Dave's filling a oven tray full of water. And he spilled a little bit on his surface there, but I'm sure that's not too much of a problem, eh, Dave? As long as I tidied up, yes. <laughs> so when we come back later in the show, assuming that the water in the can is really violently boiling, we're going to lift it up carefully with some barbecue tongs, turn it upside down and put it straight into that tray of water. Let us know what you think will happen to our can and we'll come back to you later in the show. Thanks, Ben. We'll join them later on. But if you think you know what will happen to their can when they get their boiling water inside, then turn it upside down to place it on a tray of water. Then do get in touch. Or, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love Love to hear from you. The email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Lifting the lab coat on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists and today we're talking all about the very latest in science concerned with the treatment and prevention of cancer. Now, cervical cancer is the second most common type of cancer in women under 35 and the majority of these cancers are caused by infection with members of a family of viruses known as the human papillomaviruses or HPV. Now, there are more than 100 different types of HPV which can cause um, verrucas and warts and all sorts of things like genital warts. But surprisingly, in fact, just two types of HPV known as strains 16 and 18 are the cause of 
the majority of cervical cancers. Now, this means it's been possible to make a vaccine to prevent infection with these cancer-causing strains. And this is now being rolled out across the UK and given initially to girls aged between 12 and 13. Now, Dr Anne Sharevsky is from Cancer Research UK and she joins us now to explain a bit more about the vaccine. Hi, Anne. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Now, can we start off first of all with just a little bit more about what HPV is and, and why does it cause cancer? Well, HPV is a human papillomavirus, and it's an extremely common virus. Um, and it basically, it's, it's been described as a normal consequence of having sex, that it's actually so common that just about everyone's going to get it at some point in their lives. So in itself, it's quite boring, actually. But the problem is that some people don't get rid of it. Most people catch HPV, a bit like a cold, and, you know, a month later or something, they've got rid of it. A small percentage of people don't get rid of it. And it's those people where the virus becomes persistent, where it kind of takes hold, that then it can start to change uh, the cells, it can make them abnormal, and it can then cause cancer. Right, and now there's this, this brand new vaccine which we've been um, hearing about in the last couple of weeks. How, how does that work? Basically, what it what it does is it's it mimics the virus, so it's what what's called a virus-like particle. So they've taken the coat, the sort of the coat of the virus, and they've made it look exactly like the coat of the actual virus. But there's no HPV DNA inside, so there's no active anything uh, that could actually give you disease. So it's it's a sort of like a, a sort of just a ghost in a way. And so, but what it does is it makes the immune system think that the virus is actually there because the immune system recognises this coat and it reacts to it. So you get a very strong response from the immune system without there being anything present that could actually harm you. So why does the presence of the virus itself not lead to any kind of immunity and, you know, sort of a natural way of, of getting rid of the cancers? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And this virus appears to have kind of evolved and adapted so that it kind of just sits around. What it does is it invades skin cells. And if you think about this, your immune system has to be more or less turned off to what goes on on your skin. Or we would all have loads and loads of allergies, you know, on our skin all the time. We'd all be sort of atopic, eczematous. So your, your skin is actually relatively turned off in terms of immunity. And so the HPV takes advantage of that and it actually invades into skin cells, which are kind of um, under the radar, if you like, of the immune system. And so it can just replicate quietly, doesn't go into the bloodstream. So it doesn't alert any sort of part of the immune system that it's there. And it just replicates and replicates. And then, of course, the skin is shed all the time. And that's how it's passed on from one person to another. So the other important thing to know about it is that it's not just transmitted through penetrative sex. It's transmitted through skin-to-skin -skin contact. So you can get it without actually having had sex. And coming back to the vaccine, um, what sort of numbers do we need to look at in terms of protection um, to try and combat this as a disease in the population? Well, if we're looking at what's called herd immunity, which is where you sort of need to have enough people vaccinated so that the whole population becomes protected, even those who aren't, then you're really talking around 80%, which I think is quite a, an ambitious target. Absolutely. And, um, and why is it that we're targeting these girls at this particular age, at around 12 years old? 
two reasons. One, one is that the vaccines will obviously work best before there's been any contact, any possible contact with HPV. So you want to vaccinate people before they've actually had sex. But also importantly, vaccines, most vaccines actually work best when they're given to younger uh, children, adolescents, because in terms of immunity, you're actually quite old by the time you're 20, which is rather a sad thought. So your immune system's kind of already sort of running down by then. So you get the best antibody response if you actually give it to young adolescents. And, and am I right that there is any, is there some level of cross protection to other types of HPV and, and types of HPV that cause other problems like genital warts? Have we got any kind of um, protection against those things as well with this vaccine? Okay, well then I think it's important to realise there are actually two vaccines and one of them does contain the, the strains of HPV that would, would be for genital warts. And, but the one that's being rolled out in the vaccination programme is the one that only contains the cervical cancer types. However, it does appear that there is cross-protection against other HPV types, but they are the cancer types. So interestingly enough, this vaccine that is being used in the programme appears to have quite good protection against HPV 45, which is another of the more important ones in cancer and also HPV 31. That's fantastic. Thanks, Anne. Well, that was Anne Sharavsky from the Cancer Research UK. She was explaining to us about the HPV vaccine, which is the first real vaccine we've had against any form of cancer. So this really is very exciting and it's giving us the possibility that we might be able to stamp out one of the really deadly forms of cancer. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Helen Scales and with Dr Kat Arney, who's up in Birmingham. So let's go back to Kat right now. She's at the NCRI, that's the National Cancer Research Institute's conference up in Birmingham, and she's got Herbie Newell with her to find out about a new way to pick up cancer much sooner, Kat. Hello. Yes, joining me here in our little booth overlooking the lecture theatre at the NCRI conference is Herbie Newell, and he's Professor of Cancer Therapeutics at the Northern Institute for Cancer Research. Hi, Herbie. Hi, Kat. Well, we're going to talk about today um, some very exciting new initiatives that have been announced in terms of cancer imaging. Now, let's kind of take a little step back and look at what do we mean when we talk about imaging and, and why do we need to do it? Why is it important? OK, so most people are familiar with imaging in the form of X-rays or maybe MR scans and, and a lot, lot of people will have had those. What we're talking about here is taking it to the next stage where you're not just looking at what's inside the body but you're looking also at the genes and the molecules inside the body and of course in the case of cancer, the genes that have gone wrong. And this new initiative, what's that all about? What's Cancer Research UK and its partners up to? Well, this is a fantastic example of partnership between Cancer Research UK, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, EPSRC, and also supported by the Medical Research Council and the Departments of Health in, the UK, in England. What we're doing is we're putting £50 million into cancer imaging, reflecting how important this is going to be to attack the cancer problem. And what sort of things are we hoping to look at? What, what sort of avenues are we going to be exploring with this 
very large sums of money. Well, we're going to be using lots of different techniques, first of all, as you say earlier, to try and find cancer earlier. We're expecting to have tests soon, blood tests, that will tell us when someone might have a cancer. But the critical question is, is where is that cancer in the body so you can send the surgeons into the right place? Then, as we develop new treatments, we need to demonstrate that they're working much earlier than we have to do. We do at the moment where we do big clinical trials costing millions of pounds before we can really find out whether a drug's working. We want imaging techniques to find that out earlier. And so what sort of techniques are we actually looking into? Uh, I mean, we hear about things like CT scanning, MRI scanning, um, PET scanning. What sort of actual techniques will our scientists be investigating? Okay, so as part of this CRUK and EPSRC initiative, we're going to be using any kind of imaging that might work. So, for example, it may be like CT where there's ionising radiation outside the body. It might be like a technique called positron emission tomography where you give radioactivity to a patient. It may not involve radioactivity at all like magnetic resonance imaging. And we're also looking at some optical techniques as well to try and make microscopy work but in a whole living person. So you could actually use light to see inside someone. That's absolutely right, and, and see right down to the level of the cell, which of course is, is the thing we're looking for in cancer. And so what sort of areas of research are the development of these going, techniques going to help? I mean, you, we talked about diagnosis earlier, but are there other areas of research and cancer treatment that will benefit from this? Absolutely. These could play a really important part in every stage of the cancer journey, not only catching it earlier, but getting the diagnosis right working out for each patient what their prognosis is, how their tumour might go on, whether it's a high-risk or a low-risk tumour. And then when it comes to treatment, making sure that each patient gets the treatment that's most likely to work and also knowing much, much sooner whether it is working or not. And a lot of these uh, imaging techniques, they're they're based around radioactivity, for example, some of the radioactive traces that are put into the body. What kind of areas are being investigated in in that aspect? Because I think this is quite an exciting area of science. Absolutely. So one of the big new techniques that's come on recently, and the government are just rolling this out now across the country, is a technique called positron emission tomography. It's the electrically other end of the scale to electrons. They're positive electrons. And you give these radioactive materials to people and they're already important we know for getting the diagnosis and prognosis of lung cancer right, helping with managing patients with some kind of haematological malignancies, some types of lymphoma. But at the moment we've actually really only got one type of tracer that we use. What we'll do in this initiative is develop a whole new family of tracers that will tell us all about all aspects of cancer cell biology. And for the area that you yourself work in, the development of new cancer drugs, cancer therapeutics, how do you think these kind of imaging techniques are going to help you? Well, these are going to be absolutely critical, Kat, because what we'll be able to do is to do the experiments that we currently do in cell lines in test tubes, but we'll be able to do them in the only model that really matters, the patient. So we'll be able to look at biochemical reactions when we put in new drugs to see whether we're affecting them in the way we want to. And that will help us pick out the winners, get the drugs that are going to be the blockbusters and really help cancer patients much sooner than we do at the moment.
Sounds like exciting times ahead. And in terms of the actual the initiative, how's that going to work? I mean, £50 million is a big pot of money to spend. How are you going to, to divvy it up? Well, as ever in science, we've looked at all of the centres who work in this area. We've considered their proposals and decided to fund big time nine of the best. This is serious amounts of money that Cancer Research UK, EPSRC, MRC and the Department of Health England are putting in. So with these centres of excellence, we'll be able to set up a network that will get people moving together to get this exciting technology through into patients much faster. And one of the things that people get concerned about is, for example, the cost of some of these techniques. We hear that, you know, CT scanners are very expensive, MRI scanners are very expensive. I can imagine that PET scanners cost a bomb. Um, how do you think that um, if we do develop these techniques, you know, do you think it's going to be feasible to roll them out as widely as possible? It's a really important question. Our role first and foremost is to provide the hard evidence base that says this technique might work, this one unfortunately doesn't look so promising. Having got through that stage, it then becomes a social issue that we have to recognise the value that will be brought to the individual patient and also to the whole healthcare economy by personalised medicine. And that's what this initiative is all about, Kat. It's about focusing the right treatments on the right patients so that we don't waste time and money with ineffective and sometimes expensive patient uh, treatments rather being given to patients where it's just not going to work and again so you'll be able to see as soon as possible if something's working something's not working you sort of get right in there and indeed we've got on. some examples already where you can tell within 24 hours whether a patient is likely to respond because the drug has or has not produced the effect you want on tumor cell biology and we need more of those examples well, thanks very much, Herbie, for talking to us here on The Naked Scientists. And we're going to go back to the NCRI conference now. We're just listening to Harvey Chotinoff, who's talking about his research into, into dying with dignity, a very important area of palliative care. And uh, I'm sure that I'll be back in the studio soon and I'll be back at the NCRI conference next year. So back to you, Chris. Thanks, Kat. That was Professor Herbie Newell chatting with our own Kat Arney at the NCRI conference in Birmingham. Now, I've had a very quick question here from Rolly Mandelbrot in Second Life, Chris, and he wants to know, wasn't there something about shining light on skin that was a method of detecting um, cancers? Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, people have found that there's a technique which is called Raman spectroscopy, which when you shine light at something, the light gets bombarded or ricocheted about like bullets bouncing around a room when it passes through different substances. And depending upon the structures it's passing through, you get a different fingerprint scatter pattern. So we know what normal skin does, and so if you shine light into skin which has got, say, a malignant melanoma on it, you get a different scatter pattern entirely. And so scientists are investigating this as a very sensitive diagnostic technique because you may be able to use it, therefore, to pinpoint a lesion which you might think, I'm not suspicious enough to want to biopsy it, but I might be suspicious enough to wave one of these wands at it and it would say, yes, that's got a scatter pattern that says there's a lot of cells which are in an abnormal configuration under the skin. It could be cancer. It's worth doing a biopsy, which is encouraging. That's good news. I hope that answers your question. Thanks for that. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen, and we're talking about cancer this week. And in particular, we're talking about ways we can pick up cancer sooner or treat it. Now, the way in which we tend to treat most cancers at the moment is to use surgery to remove a tumour and then radiotherapy and or some chemotherapy to mop up any stray cells that could have been left behind somewhere else around the body. But an even better approach might be to use the patient's own immune system to persuade it to attack the tumour and remove it in the same way as it might attack, say, an infection with a bacterium. Now, this is a relatively new field, and it's known as 
as immunotherapy, and recently researchers at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre in Seattle have been using this approach to cure. Now, I'm using that word very, very carefully because it's early days yet, but they have successfully cured a patient who had malignant melanoma. And Cassian Yee is the researcher who's been leading this work. He joins us now. Hello, Cassian. Hello, how do you do? Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So how does this technique to re-persuade the immune system to attack someone's tumour work? Uh, we use a process uh, known as adoptive immunotherapy, and that involves collecting uh, white blood cells, the cells that you mentioned uh, uh, can fight infection but can also fight tumour, and taking from um, these white blood cells a population of cells known as T cells, which specifically recognize uh, the patient's tumour cells. Uh, in the lab, we can isolate those uh, rare T cells that can um, recognize and kill uh, the melanoma cells um, because the melanoma cells express a target antigen. And uh, if we can expand enough uh, of these T cells, um, we actually clone them into single cells, but if we can expand enough of these T cells and infuse them back into the patient, it's hoped that they can travel uh, to the melanoma site and then uh, recognize and eradicate the tumor cells. So Cassian, why don't the T cells, if the patient's already got them to start with and you're just increasing the numbers, why don't they go in there and wipe out the tumor for the patient without any help from you? Uh, yeah, so that's a very good question. For, for a long time, people felt that, well, perhaps uh, these cells do exist in the body. And it turns out that um, using uh, specialized techniques to detect these cells, they are present, but in uh, very low numbers. Uh, and I think you mentioned earlier in the program that the body sometimes um, suppresses uh, the immune response against normal cells. And part of this um, suppressive mechanism may prevent these T cells from recognizing tumors as well. So... Um, Using uh, this process of adoptive therapy, we're able to isolate these cells outside the lab and expand them without the um, constraints that might be present uh, in the body um, that uh, limit their expansion uh, against the tumor cells. Now, on top of that, the tumor cells themselves have um, uh, evasive mechanisms. They uh, find ways to prevent um, uh, the immune system from revving up and recognizing them by releasing uh, uh, suppressive factors or by co-opting um, uh, immune suppressive cells to prevent the immune system from recognizing and expanding them. So by taking them out of that environment and putting back in and expanded numbers, we may be able to uh, override some of these immune escape mechanisms. Now, one of the interesting things about treating cancers is that when you start to treat them, because cancers are already genetically deranged, in other words, their genetic material is all over the place, this means that cancers are not all the same and therefore some cells will be killed by certain therapies others will disguise themselves, look a bit different, and they escape therapy because they evolve ways of, of being unresponsive to the drugs and so on and so forth. So why doesn't that happen here? Why don't you end up with a clone of cancer cells that aren't recognized by these immune T cells you're putting back in and therefore they escape and bring the cancer back? Uh, yeah, so that's a very good question, and that is one of the major obstacles for immune therapy or any type of a specific therapy. Uh, in, in this case... Well, actually, actually we, we did originally do the study with one type of T-cell, the CDA T-cell, and found that that happened um, in some of our patients where, as you say, the, the, the tumor cell um, uh, somehow was able to evade detection by suppressing expression of the antigen that was recognized by the T-cell. But in this case, we used a different type of T-cell, a CD4 T-cell. And this, this T-cell um, not only may kill the tumor cell directly by recognizing this antigen, uh, but it may also um, recruit uh, or bring to the tumor site um, other immune cells that can kill it in a nonspecific fashion. So once the CD4 T cell, which we've expanded in the lab and given back to the patient, uh, goes to the tumor site, the CD4 T cell may release um, uh, other, uh, we call them chemokines or cytokines, that bring to the tumor site um, other immune effector cells 
which may kill the tumor non-specifically, regardless of whether they express the antigen that was targeted in the first place or not. So um, by bringing to bear um, other uh, immune effector cells, we may be able to um, uh, eradicate tumor cells, whether they express the original targeted antigen or not. Um, now, one thing we did find in, in the paper uh, uh, and, and in um, some of our patients is that uh, when this happened, the tumor cell breaks down, and um, because the CD4 T cell is present and causes inflammatory response, other antigens are brought uh, to light, and the body's own immune response takes over and starts to direct um, its own uh, T cells that we didn't grow in the lab, but its own T cells that were already there um, to expand and grow and kill other um, targets on the tumor cell. And what's the risk, having just said what you've said, that you might end up with inappropriate attack? So in other words, if you look at certain diseases like thyroid disease or rheumatoid arthritis or certain types of diabetes, that's where the immune system is inappropriately attacking healthy tissue. If you're priming the immune system like that and then getting this spillover to other bits of the immune system, what's the danger or is there a danger that you might get an autoimmune disease and instead of just attacking tumours, these cells then start attacking something else that you don't want them to hit? Well, that's a very good question. Um, in part, that might be uh, limited by the local effect, where the uh, initial um, uh, um, homing, I guess, or trafficking of, of the T cells that we gave uh, to the uh, patient uh, end up um, expanding. So that uh, local inflammatory process where um, we've targeted the tumor specifically may set up sort of a, uh, an inflammatory environment that, that causes an immune reaction to occur, but that's not to say that some of these cells can't travel to uh, other sites and cause some autoimmunity. And in fact, we have seen some autoimmunity um, in patients where uh, some of the target cells, uh, sorry, some of the target antigens on the cells are also expressed by normal cells. So in the case of melanoma, some of these targets are uh, the pigmented proteins, so uh, whatever is responsible for the coloration on your skin, so that when we start killing the tumor cells, some of these T cells may also end up killing. A normal a pigmented skin cells, and then we see a whitening, a sort of a lightening color uh, on, on normal skin. Um, and that type of autoimmunity is not too uh, toxic. It's, it's still relatively safe uh, in terms of um, uh, patient discomfort. But uh, when we see this, we also recognize that uh, these patients have a high likelihood of responding as well to the immunotherapy because what's happening in the normal cells is also happening to the tumor. So, so you're right, there is some autoimmunity, but we think a lot of it is concentrated where the initial inflammatory reaction occurs. And finally, Cassian, um, you've done this with malignant melanoma. That's an important problem because the numbers have gone up in this country at least 100% in the last 10 years. In fact, every Western country is seeing lots of malignant melanoma, but we're also seeing lots of other cancers and particularly things like lung cancer. So will the same approach you've taken also transfer to other types of tumors? Yeah, so we've taken melanoma sort of as a, a model tumor because a lot of the target antigens are known for it, and we know that there are T cells that can be generated that recognize those target antigens. Uh, but as it turns out, there are antigens that are also shared with lung cancer and breast cancer and prostate cancer. Um, however, a lot of those studies are in very early stages. While people sort of work out what the necessary conditions and what the timing of the uh, immunotherapy is uh, for treating other types of cancer. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much. That was um, Cassian Yi uh, telling us about his approach to immunotherapy. This is persuading the immune system to attack a tumour. Thank you, Cassian. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. And now it's time to invite the lovely Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for our question of the week. Hello, Diana. Hello, lovely Helen. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, this week uh, we've got a very crimson question for you. Hello there. S. Mount Fitchett from Chipping Norton. 
I just want to know, why is it that humans have three different blood groups, A, B and O, and do animals have the same blood groupings? Thank you. So, in other words, would your pet need to get itself tested for a blood donor card? I'm Karen Hum and I'm one of the emergency and critical care vets at the Queen Mother Hospital for Animals in London. All animals do have different blood groups. Humans have a system based on A, B and O and other animals have different systems. Basically, the blood groups are based on little proteins that sit on the outside of red blood cells and the reason it's important for us to be able to tell what blood group um, an animal or a person is in is because the blood from one person may not be compatible with another person if their blood group is not the same. In dogs, we have a system called DEA 1.1, 1.2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. And in cats, we also have A and B, but they're not the same as A and B in human blood systems. So we don't know exactly why people have different blood groups or why animals have different blood groups, but it is very important because of the um, risk of interactions with different blood groups in people and animals. It might be that some blood groups give an advantage in some circumstances, and certainly some ethnic groups are more likely likely to have blood groups than other people. So people from Mediterranean origin are much more likely to have blood group B than people from non-Mediterranean backgrounds. But the actual cause of them, we don't fully understand. So animals have blood types too, but because they are so varied, vets have to use different systems for each one. Blood type refers to the type of antigens we have on our blood cells that form part of our immune system. At present, there's no clear reason for having different blood types. It just seems to be one of those things that mutated a few thousand generations ago and got stuck like it. Here's a question that could also get stuck. Hello, my name is Jay. I live in Indonesia. And um, this is my question. Why do songs grow better with repeated listening? So why is it that even the latest spawn of reality TV can sound better with time? Let us know by writing it all over our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum or send us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Thank you very much, Diana. Have you had any songs stuck in your head lately? Um, nothing worth noting. They're all pretty rubbish, I would say. <laughs> I see that Jay in Indonesia saying, why do songs get stuck in your head and improve with repeated listening? Clearly James Blunt hasn't made it down to Indonesia yet, has he? <laughs> Always with the James Blunt <laughs> gags, honestly, we, Chris. <laughs> we've got a cure for that. Thanks very much. That's Diana O'Carroll with this week's question of the week. If uh, you would like to join in and ask her a question, then you can just send it to us, chris at thenakedscientist.com, and Diana will try and tackle it for you. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to Naked Scientists, and now it's time to get back to Dave's kitchen, where Ben and Dave are heating water in, drink, in a drinks can, all in the name of kitchen science. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. Earlier on, we took an empty drinks can, a fizzy pop can, not one with a widget in it, that's quite important. We put a small amount of water in the bottom and we put it on Dave's electric hob. It's now boiling quite vigorously and there's certainly a lot of steam coming out of the top. Now Dave, what are we going to do again? I'm now going to take some barbecue tongs and very carefully, wearing goggles, going to pick it up, turn it upside down quickly into a tray full of water. Okay, so this is clearly an experiment that we have to be very careful with because there's boiling water in the can, there's very hot steam coming out, and of course the can itself will also be very hot. Yeah, that's right, so just be careful. Okay, let's see it. (laughs) Wow! As soon as Dave put the can into the water... It crushed it. It crushed the can completely. I was expecting to see lots of hissing and steaming as the water boiled away and it heated up the cold water. But instead it just totally crushed the can. It's almost as if it imploded. It's pretty much what it did, actually, yes. So why did this happen? Why did it do that? 
Well, when we were heating the can on the hob, it was basically boiling the water inside. And when you boil water, it gets about 600 times bigger and turns into steam. So slowly the can would have filled up with steam. Then we took the can off the hob and put it into the cold water. Lots of the steam will hit the sides of the now cold can, condense and shrink by a factor of 600 again. And so it's the steam condensing back from being steam into being water that pulls the can inwards and crushes it. Yeah, that's right. And although there's a big hole where the ring pool was, the time it would take to suck water up through that would be so much longer than it took for the water to condense that the can just gets crushed by the air pressure outside it. So is it crushing the can by pulling it inwards? Well, basically what happens is as the water condenses, the pressure inside the can drops an awful lot. But the air pressure outside the can is still the same as ever. And air pressure is about 10 tonnes per square metre. So this huge air pressure is enough to just crush that can incredibly quickly, leaving the kind of crushed remnants of a can we can see there. So it's not actually the condensing steam pulling inwards, but it's just the sheer weight of the air around us that pushed the can inwards and crushed it. Yeah, that's right. And this principle was how Thomas Newcomen built the first practical steam engine. So his steam engines worked in the same way as our crushed can? Yeah, that's right. He had a cylinder and he'd fill the cylinder with steam, and then he'd shut off the valve from the steam and squirt in cold water. This would cause the steam to condense and shrink by a factor of 600, pulling the piston down very, very strongly. This piston was then attached to a big beam, which pulled up a big long piece of string attached to a pump at the bottom and pumped water up out of mines. Well, this is obviously a very good way of making steam work for you. I mean, it made very light work of that can. Is that how the more modern steam engines work as well? Well, the first big change that happened to steam engines was that James Watt worked out that about 80% of the energy that you're putting into a Newcomen steam engine was wasted heating up and cooling down the cylinder. He took the stage where you condense the steam outside of the cylinder and put it into another box called a condenser. You squirted steam into the cylinder, which pushed the piston up, and then you shut that valve and you open another valve to the condenser. All the steam would rush down into the low-pressure condenser where it would condense into water again. And this would pull the piston back down again. So that was 80% more efficient. But what did they put into steam locomotives? Well, these old-fashioned steam engines, which basically use air pressure to push down on them, need really huge cylinders. So you'd end up with a steam engine weighing 80 tonnes and maybe only having a couple of horsepower. So instead, when they started building steam locomotives, they used much higher pressures. They'd heat up the steam to well over 100 degrees centigrade, so it'd be more than one atmosphere of pressure which means that a much smaller piston at high pressure will produce the same amount of power as a big piston at a low pressure. Well, I never realised that the workings of a steam engine were so simple that you could show it just by heating up a can. But I do think it's a very inefficient way of crushing my cans, so I think I might just stamp on them in future. But that's all we have for Kitchen Science this week. Next time, Dave will be live in the studio with the Kitchen Science, for which you will need a fresh cup of tea and some milk. In the meantime, if you want to try out any other experiments, just go to thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, where there's loads of experiments for you to try out at home. But that's all we have for this week. We'll be back very soon. So get your teaspoons and teacups ready to take part in Dave's Kitchen Science next week. There was Ben and Dave doing this week's experiments on steam. I mean, that was amazing, actually. It's amazing what you can discover just with a tin can. Brilliant. Well done to them. If you like doing kitchen science type experiments as well, um, we have just written a book. It's called Crisp Packet Fireworks. It's just come out and we've written up 50 of the best kitchen science experiments. And it's written at a level which everyone can enjoy. So you can do experiments as a whole family. So any good bookshop, there's more details on our website, nakedscientist.com. I've got a question here from Jerry in Bury St Edmunds and he wants to know if there are treatments for wound cancer. Yes, there are. And um, this is endometrial cancer. It's 
not that common, but common enough that it's a major problem. Obviously, it only affects women because men don't have a uterus. Um, the common associations are it tends to be in people who've been exposed to certain hormones in life. It's also linked to certain types of breast cancer that are genetic, and it's also linked to people that are carrying a bit too much weight. So all those things are risk factors for endometrial cancer. Um, the sign that it might be going to happen is that people can develop bleeding when they shouldn't be bleeding. So in other words, when they're postmenopausal or intermenstrually. So that's a sign there might be something wrong. So you should always get that investigated. In terms of dealing with it, there are a number of approaches. One of them is surgery. If you remove the organ then that prevents the cancer from, or takes the cancer out of the body. The other way to do it is uh, sometimes used in addition to a, a subsequent surgical treatment, which is that you can use radiation. So you can put these um, uh, sort of, they're like pods, if you like, into the vagina, and they contain a uh, radioactive source, which is put up close to where the uterus is, and the radiation comes out, goes into the cancerous cells and damages them, and then you can kill the cancer that way, and then you withdraw the whole apparatus, and this is a way of preventing it. So there's a number of different treatments, and there's also um, people investigating various hormonal treatments as well, but I don't know of any clinical trials that are doing that at the moment. I hope that helps answer your question, Jerry. We've, we've also heard from Troy on Second Life, and he wants to know, um, is there some way of detecting cancers using sound waves? Oh, definitely. Um, this was experimental, but very exciting, because one of the big problems with cancers spreading around the body, or cancers that may be so tiny or... or almost impossible to see on the skin surface, for example, is that how do you know if they're already in the bloodstream? Well, cancers throw off cells. These are called metastases or metastatic cells. And if you've got malignant melanoma, which is making a lot of melanin, the dark pigment, what you can do is take blood samples, and there might be one in a million cells in the bloodstream, which is a malignant melanoma. Scientists have found that if you zap this with laser light at a, at a frequency which the melanoma will absorb, but other cells won't, then the cell can be made to resonate and it makes a sort of snapping or ricochet-like noise, which you can hear with a very sensitive microphone, and this tells you the cells are there. Fantastic. Cheers, Helen. I've also got an email here from Chaz Simpson, Dr Chaz Simpson, who's listening in South Africa. He says hello, so hello to you, Chaz. Good to have you on board. And also Chris Burgess, he's in Felton in California, has written to me to say, how do plant cells protect themselves from UV damage? He goes on to say, how different are the cells of a leaf from the cells of our skin with respect to protecting their DNA from UV damage? Do the cells of the leaf ever get anything like a skin cancer? Well, the answer is, Chris, that plants can get damaged by UV, and especially plants that live at very high altitudes. And recently, scientists published a paper in which they'd been studying the plant Edelweiss. No, it's not just something you find in The Sound of Music. It is a real plant, and it grows high up in the Alps. And because it's at the tops of mountains, the UV exposure it gets is potentially very, very high. And what scientists have found is that it does have a strategy for protecting itself from UV. And the way it does it is by covering the plant's leaves in very tiny hairs. And when scientists have studied the structure of those hairs, they find that they're made of even tinier filaments which are wound around or plaited together. And those filaments are about 100 nanometers across. And 100 nanometers is roughly the wavelength of ultraviolet light. And this means the filaments can interact with the ultraviolet coming in from the sunlight and they channel the ultraviolet and capture it and push it into the core of the hair fibre where there's thought to be some water and this reservoir of water soaks up the UV and this prevents the UV getting to the leaf surface and damaging the plant's cells where if it didn't have that it would obviously damage the cells and they would senesce or grow old sooner than they would and it would have an ageing effect on the plant and it would have to make new leaves sooner than it would do normally. Intriguing stuff. 
Thank you very much for that great question. Right, well, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. That's it for this week's Naked Scientists. We're back next week with a Naked Scientists question and answer extravaganza. So all of your thoughts, all of your questions, all of your emails just get channeled in and we answer as many of them as we possibly can. So if you'd like to send us a question, and the wackier the better, then write to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Another reason to write to us is to let us know that you've completed our survey because we're running a web survey, nakedscientist.com forward slash survey, to find out what you do and don't like about this programme. And this is really important because not only do we try and make the programme even better, but you could win some stuff. We're giving away a T-shirt, which is a Naked Scientist T-shirt. It's going to be the first official ever Naked Scientist T-shirt with our new logo on it. That's our first prize. And we're also giving 10 runner-up prizes of copies of our new book, Crisp packet fireworks and that's just been published and we'll sign those for you myself and dr dave and the first 11 names out of our hat will win those prizes to enter all you have to do is fill in the survey and give us your email address so we know who you are so that we can send you your prize the survey nakedscientist.com forward slash survey thank you very much to our guests this week who are Anne Sharevsky and Herbie Newell and Cassian Yee and our wonderful production team Diana O'Carroll Mira Senthalingam Tom Simpkins and the kitchen science crew Ben and Dave thanks for listening see you next time goodbye the Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust the EPSRC and UK Fast for more information look us up online at nakedscientist.com 